Welcome back again to the Social World Podcast. Delighted to have your company. I'm Dave Niven, and today we're going to listen to part two of that fantastic interview with Christopher Lamb. Now, you heard in the first podcast, if you were lucky enough to listen to it, you heard all about his diplomatic positions across the world, his views on the value of this diplomacy, the value of humanitarian diplomacy, and also the way that sometimes you have to be fairly lateral in your thinking in order to actually achieve what you are there for, which is to serve the people, to serve the vulnerable people and to protect the vulnerable people. And today we carry on with that when Christopher outlines his time with the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. So perhaps then, without any further ado, here's Christopher Lamb. If you want to sort of give us a kind of a link between how you finished, if you like, your work specifically within the diplomatic side of it, and then actually went on to the, become the chief diplomat with the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies from 2000 onwards, which is, of course, just about the time that you and I met. Um, I mean, for me, you see, I, I'm listening to all you're saying about how you managed to get people to listen to you, how you managed to engineer situations so that they were effectively giving you an opportunity to present your case and to actually satisfy your constituency, which essentially in this case was a country, America, Australia. So in my case, in social work, the whole kind of, if you like, um, tenet behind it for me was the resolution of conflict. And that's always now struck me as you've been talking, perhaps you on a more of a macro level than me on a micro level, but essentially that's what we're all about, the resolution of conflict and the actual protection of vulnerable people and communities. And that was about this sort of situation when you and I met in about, was it about 2000 or just before that, something like that? No, it was 2000 or two, 2001. When it, yeah. 2000, 2001. I, I came to the Red Cross in, 2000, in March 2000. Right. So it would have been okay. know, six months or a year after that. Now, you joined the International Federation. Had you been involved with them in any capacity before or this was this was a new a new horizon no, for you? I'd been in the in the legal office in the foreign ministry and then I'd been legal advisor uh, for quite uh, on many different occasions, but legal advisor in my last full term in Canberra. And one of the things that uh, always interested me was the way the Red Cross functions. Mm-hmm. And I've got a lot of uh, residual thinking about the Red Cross locked in my brain, and a lot of it's coming out now during this coronavirus thing. Mm. The the real entry of the Red Cross into civilian catastrophe was the thing known wrongly as the Spanish flu. Uh, Governments were unable to handle the ravages of that flu. And in many countries, but the United States and Australia and the UK are all countries with varying levels of involvement in this, the Red Cross societies were called on by the governments to take over, in some cases, the complete civil administration of localities where government had collapsed because of the flu. Is this the, are you talking about at the end of the, just after the First World War? After the First World War, which 
uh, is not what President Trump said yesterday. The First World War no, was not no, ended know, by the flu. It actually, <laughs> the flu came. <laughs> I, know, I know. I, I think we just wash over that one, Christopher. Yeah. It, and it didn't come from Spain either. It came, in fact, from Kansas. No. <laughs> <laughs> However, uh, the, the role of the Red Cross in civil administration and restoring public trust and authority in 1918 and 19 was critical to the country's plural getting out of that flu. And we're looking at things a little bit like that now in a sense. But what happened with the Red Cross particularly was that in 1919, uh, recognition of what the Red Cross had done made governments realize that the Red Cross had to be given a role beyond conflict. And so the League of Red Cross Societies was set up at the inspiration of Woodrow Wilson as the partner organization for the League of Nations. The League of Nations never got off the ground really and then collapsed when the Second World War came, but the League of Red Cross Societies uh, prospered and did very good work in terms of disaster and disease in particular, but also later discrimination on those issues and migration as, as whole populations fled from across the new borders after the First World War. There was a whole new non-conflict role for the, for the Red Cross Societies and that interested me very much, the way that had happened and how the Red Cross societies formed around the world had done so with the backing of governments through the covenant of the League of Nations. If you and the listeners want to remember this, go and look later on at the covenant of the League and have a look at Article 25, because that's the article that tells governments that they need to build their own local national Red Cross societies for these sorts of reasons. And that interested me very much as a lawyer and as a person who was interested in humanitarian issues. So that stayed with me all the way through my time in embassies. And I always went to meet the people in the local Red Cross Society where I talked to them or learned from them about the needs and vulnerabilities of the local population. So that was with me when you and I met. And, uh, and I'm very proud of that, that thing. But it also led me to understand that Red Cross Societies as a matter of law, are the auxiliaries to their, their public authorities in the humanitarian field. And from that, we understand, and this is clear from the humanitarian diplomacy course that I teach, the public authorities are much more than government. They include judges, railways, postal services, parliaments, not just the executive government. So when the time came for the World Congress on Family Law, where we met David, one of the people that I knew in Australia was a man called Alistair Nicholson, who was the chief judge of the family court in Australia. And we talked about this Congress and he said he would get me invited to it. So he did. I said to the International Federation, I want to go to this conference. They said, why? It's got nothing to do with the Red Cross. I said, it has everything to do with it. And I explained to them about the, the auxiliary role to the public authorities and said, judges have to be seen this way. We are making a big thing about HIV AIDS, but we aren't touching all the people who have a role in that. And I said to them, do you understand that if you have a family with one or more of the people living with AIDS, do you understand how little judges know about how to handle things like custody and, and family support in the event of a marriage breakdown? Mm. And they looked at me as if I was coming from outer space and they said, you mean 
you mean you can do something like that? I said, yes, I can. I've been invited to this thing. You pay, I'll go, and I'll gather all these judges and I'll tell them something. And it happened, and then I met you. And you did. <laughs> yes. I remember it. I remember it well. It was a very, very good conference, actually, in the end. And I think you were satisfied with what you got out yeah. of it. But I think a lot of people were quite pleased and, and not just, you know, listening to what you were having to say, but there was quite a lot of other good presentations there. I think it was quite a good conference in total. The atmosphere was good at that conference, and I don't think it's been particularly special since then. That was a, a period in the world when there was a, a willingness to learn and then apply that learning. Well, I'd just come back at the time from the also from another group. I mean, it was a very sort of, if you like, kind of productive time. It was the first, just before that, I'd been at the first World Congress on the sex, uh, sexual exploitation of children in Stockholm. And oh, yeah. that, that was a thousand people had, had been there, a thousand delegates. And that was a massive kickstart to what's now a regular program. And at the time, I mean, I, I, I vividly remember that. And I vividly remember talking with the actor, Roger Moore, who, um, who was there as well, uh, disclosing his um, abusive uh, uh, past as well, or, you know, having been a victim of abuse. Um, I mean, and that was a very powerful conference. And so there was like two back to back that really made big impressions on me. But can I just get back to one of the things I mentioned to you earlier? Because, I mean, so much of it, is, of your work is involved, as I said, in persuading decision makers and opinion leaders to act. Uh, and you, you've said it yourself in the past, in the interests of vulnerable people. Do you feel retrospectively that you can safely say, and I would say you had, but it's up to you to agree or not, whether you've had um, success in that? Oh, yes, I think so. I, I do think so. But I, I don't think that my organization, the Red Cross Federation, gave it enough attention later. And when I left, they brought in people who had new kinds of working arrangement. They had they arrived with a thing which I think is a plague on the whole humanitarian world, the world-famous business plan. So you need a business plan, KPIs, uh, how are you going to mark what you've done? I remember when these people came, not long before I left, or retired, and they said, where's your business plan for humanitarian diplomacy? I said, humanitarian diplomacy is a, is a means, it's not an end. The, the, the mm. business plan is in the, in the AIDS unit or the disaster project or something, that's where the business plan is. I contribute to that, and they're happy with that, they like the way it works, now go away and get out of my face. Yeah, and I, I still well, agree me. with you, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's not so just... I have to think of an example of something that I, which I would show to be an a means. One of the things I said was that the Red Cross sometimes sees itself as being almost like a combat organization against things that are bad. That we're not against things that are bad, we're in favor of things that are good. We're trying to work out how to make the good work properly. And one of the things that uh, you need to have to make the good work properly is communities all over the world in which there is trust. And one of the essential elements of that trust is the police. And I asserted, and, and later I'm confident with this assertion, but at the time it was simply an assertion, that the police, generally speaking, are derived from the first systems of community organization back there in the days of caves. Somebody had to provide 
the basic resolution of problems, either for or within communities. And that working on that basis, if you're dealing with an issue, and you mentioned sexual exploitation of children, mm. if you're dealing with an issue like this, you need to have a police force that you can rely on in, and trusted by the community. They grow up in the community. That's where their people are. So I went to see Interpol to talk about these things. And I came back with a draft agreement between the Red Cross, the Federation and Interpol. And most of the people I spoke to and had time to talk to liked that idea. And I explained to them that these police have to be seen as part of a community. We need their trust. They badly need our trust. We need to work out how we can work together. They become the stakeholders and we have to train the stakeholders. Okay. Later, people said to me, <coughs> you can't work with the police. <coughs> they represent the oppressors. They are the ones who, who they're corrupt. Uh, they're the, the heartbeat of crime in many communities. I said, they are. But the way to get that to stop is to work with them. Find the honest police, work with them. And I left before this could finally be finished, but it's still there. It's not just still there, it's actually for first and foremost in, in, in so much of the sort of reporting at the moment, and so much of the contemporary kind of problems that Indeed are Indeed it is. Facing. And you look at the, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement all mm. over the world is part of that. And it's not only Black Lives, and I don't want to say those magic words, all lives matter, but it's mm. about the, the precious value that needs to be attached to human life. Absolutely. I think, I think somebody summed it up for me the other day and said, well, you know, well, what about this business of Black Lives Matter? Which, I, funnily enough, I just did a podcast or a couple of couple of uh, programs ago with it on it, and it was somebody saying, "Well, yeah, look, it's like it's like two houses, two house owners, right? One house is on fire, right? And they're saying, look, my house matters. Get the fire brigade.' And the other householder is saying, "Well, just a minute, my house matters too. Yeah, but yours is not on fire at the moment." You know, that, that was the kind of thing. Of course, all houses matter. But effectively, you know, one's on fire and, and that's the one that needs more immediate attention. That's right. Anyway, with, with Interpol, what we set up in this agreement, which, which uh, my people in the end wouldn't sign or wouldn't say they were not going to sign, they sent it off to all kinds of studies. But I ran the agreement as if it were signed and the Interpol people were happy, happy with that. It was about the arrangements that need to be made, for example, between a Red Cross society in a country and the police after a disaster. Who's going to handle the task of, of uh, restoring family links, of uniting missing people, and those sorts of things? The, do the police have the wherewithal to do that, or are they just too busy out there on small police work in a, in a small community how do you bring your resources together? And that works quite well. Did but, you have, sorry, can't finish. Uh, that's all right. I was only going to say, did you have any, um, I, I know you left the Red Cross a, a few years back there, but it was still a kind of an emerging issue, which essentially is the, the if you like, what the digital world. Um, and I was very involved at the time we were talking about, and I know I was going to come to that one of these meetings with Interpol with you, and I just couldn't make it, but because I was very involved with the the uh, Interpol group on offences against minors that I had done work with and done some training with in Germany and 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 in Sri Lanka, but effectively, um, I also interviewed recently Jim Gamble, who was head of our 
um, online protection service for several years here a, a, and also was previously head of anti-terrorism in, in Belfast and so on, but he, his passion is protecting vulnerable children. And now most of the abuse of children or the majority of the abuse of children gets focused and I feel like filtered through the internet. And I wondered if that had been an emerging issue with the Red Cross prior to you leaving or if you've had thoughts about it since. Uh, the big issue for me from about the middle of the first decade of this century was internet fraud. Mm -hmm. In other words, various forms of internet criminality that take place. And, and that the, the, the first really big uh, worldwide examples came after the Indian Ocean tsunami at the end of 2004. Yeah. And uh, that led mm -hmm. to me mm -hmm. talking to Interpol about this. And I met the people in Interpol who were looking at, at, at criminality and fraud in the internet. And that would have included the children and did. And I did talk to them a little bit about it, but because fraud was the particular mission, in the, in the wake of the tsunami, that was where we concentrated ourselves and we did some very good work together on that. Okay. Uh, and that was all, I can give you an example. An organization, uh, well, a thing that looked like an organization appeared in the internet and it was called the Santa Maria Red Cross Tsunami Survivors Fund and they were appealing for money. Right. And I saw this. Uh, I'd asked Red Cross societies around the world to let me know if they saw any of these frauds or things that might be frauds appear. And because of the time zones of the world, uh, the first time zone on any given 24 hour, on any 24 hour period is going to be just to the west of the international dateline <coughs> as the earth rotates. And because a lot of these things are set on a date. And so when the date arrives at a particular place, there it is. And so for us in Australia, the date arrives, what is it, 12 hours before it arrives with you in the UK? Yeah. No, well, first, I, yeah. The first country from which we were able to get consistent, reliable reporting on fraud was New Zealand, followed by Australia. And that was quite interesting. So we heard about the, the Red Cross Survivors Fund from Australia. I checked it out. Uh, it didn't take long. There, there are no religions in the Red Cross. So a thing called the Santa Maria Red Cross Tsunami Survivors Fund cannot be true. So we looked at it. It had an, a street address, according to the website, in Indonesia, which makes it even less likely that it would be Santa Maria. Uh, that's merely a Muslim country. Right, okay, got you right on. Yeah, and, and then I looked through this and I learned how to get behind websites and I can still do that moderately well. I see that it's got a fax number in Los Angeles. <laughs> so I contact the American Red Cross who say there's nothing they can do about a, a crime in the United States. It has to be done with the FBI. So I contacted the FBI through the United States mission in Geneva and they said they wouldn't be able to do anything about it unless it was reported to them by a United States citizen. <laughs> so I said, okay. So then I went back to my friends at Interpol, who I admit, and told them that I'm looking at this, can they help? And they had a look at it, they said it's obviously a fraud, and they got into the, uh, the website in ways that I couldn't, and checked out the donation link where you make the, the donation, and found that the donation went to a bank in Bulgaria. Uh -huh. And then looking, and then I contacted the Bulgarian Red Cross, who contacted the bank, and they're horrified about this, and the bank said, 
that they saw that their donation link had been hacked by somebody and been put there without their knowledge and then uh, any money given to that link then diverted off to a bank, one in, to two banks, one in Lithuania and the other one in New Jersey. So I, I thought, mm. okay, then I looked back at the advertising in the web and saw it had a picture of a man in a Red Cross t-shirt unloading a box from a truck. So I blew up the picture to look at it more carefully and saw that the t-shirt on the man was an Icelandic Red Cross t-shirt. So I contacted my friends in the Icelandic Red Cross, and this is all about people, as you can see, David. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I contacted the guy in the Icelandic Red Cross, and he said, well, this is really interesting. Uh, we don't want to have anything to do with that kind of thing. Uh, and I knew this man quite well. So my, my brother-in-law's cousin is the chief of police <laughs> in Iceland. And everyone's related to each other in Iceland, I think. So he contacts his brother-in-law's cousin, who is shocked by this, and he came back to me and said, what do you want to have happen? I said, Interpol can't take action without a request from a national police society, police organization. Can you get him to ask for this to be taken down? And he said he would, and then he called me back, he will, and the advertisement was taken down in about three more hours. Mm. So the life of that, of that advertisement by the Santa Maria Tsunami Survivor, Red Cross Survivors Fund was about six hours. Persistence. And you've got to work at that kind of speed on a thing like fraud for it to be of any use to anyone. No, absolutely. No, good for you. Well done on that one. Uh, now, look, they're, they're quite inspiring, those sorts of things. No, I know. Well, also, you know, they do give you a certain satisfaction when it works. I've got about five minutes left. Christopher, um, I, I, I want to, um, I know you're now the advisor to the International Federation of Red Cross and the Australian Red Cross, and as well as several other national societies, but you, you're also an associate professor that I said at the very beginning at the School of Social Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne, and you're the president of the Australia Myanmar Institute, so um, what do you do in the afternoons? Uh, I wait for you to call, David. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The, no, but... the, the, my, my times, uh, well, Melbourne University doesn't take up a lot of my time, but, but I like very much the association I have with them and it opens the door for lots of very good conversations with qualified people and with students. So right now I'm doing a job uh, with Melbourne University people about the levels of support the government should be providing to international students during this uh, coronavirus okay. episode. Okay. Uh, the government, and it's not unusual, and I guess similar things probably happen in the UK and in the, the countries of other listeners to this podcast, governments react best when the need is expressed by their own people. But the international students in Australia and in Victoria, my state, it's very important, are one of the backbones of the economy. And without the international students and their place, the, the loss to the Victorian economy would be enormous. So I think that there is a responsibility for government to provide financial and maybe accommodation support of some sort or other to the international students in Melbourne. Okay. So I'm working towards objectives that support them. Two quick things then. Uh, I've talked to you before about kind of, well, you know, my background has always been social work. And, and as I said, you know, and we talked about Venn diagrams and the overlap a bit. 
with with what your particular sort of drives were as far as your work was concerned. Have you come across much um, or many people within the world of social work during your travels? And um, just wondered what your thoughts and experiences were, because I mean, for me, you see, there's about half a million social workers worldwide, but social worker social work means so many different things. I mean, in Australia and in the UK and in America, Canada, New Zealand, whatever, that social work's virtually the same kind of principle. That it works with individuals and families to a large extent. But in many other parts of the world, social work means community activity. Um, and again, you've talked so much during what we've just, just heard about, you know, impact on communities, populations, and so forth. I just wondered what your experience of social work had been, if there was any sort of quick few sentences you could say about that. Um, I think there's a distinction to be made between social work and social welfare Mm, mm, and sociology. Uh, There is a lot of confusion uh, around the world as to what you're actually talking about. Mm. I find myself with the Australian Myanmar Institute often working on issues which are more like social welfare. Yeah. Uh, And that can often mean results for a community. Uh, yes, you're so, right. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't, and I then look at that community and see what that means for the individuals within the community. One of the things that I like, which uh, unites a lot of things that the Red Cross do, is work that was done in the 1990s in Bangladesh, where the Red Cross Federation, working with the National Society, evolved a um, a plan, a, a con- comprehensive disaster plan. And they have regular cyclones in Bangladesh and it drives the country into the water and bankrupts entire communities. So how do you deal with that? And one of the answers that they came up with in the Bangladesh Red Crescent was the need to find a way to get all the people in the community to be treated by the rest of the community as part of the same community. Hmm. And so in my work on that, we looked at how you integrate prosperity into this discussion. So if you explain to the people in a community where people have got a centuries-old uh, wish to preserve their own identity within the community, which to the exclusion of others, you can find that anybody who might be a somewhat different skin tone, a different religion, uh, a different level of education, you know, all those sorts of things that you'd be aware of, or a uh, who are infirm or crippled, by some circumstance, they can all be excluded. So the Bangladesh Red Crescent Comprehensive Plan is worked on communities <coughs> to understand that the entirety of that community had to be united to fight off the ravages of the cyclones and disaster. And it worked quite well. That sounds quite positive. And it's not bad, but it's now coming unstuck because the, the way the international community has reacted to the flight of close to a million people from Myanmar into Bangladesh and and around the town of Cox's Bazaar, the the Rakhine refugees, the Rohingya, Mm, means that there are now new separations or divisions between the, if you like, the traditional owners and the arrivals. Uh, the, the, The traditionals don't like the fact that the arrivals have got international organizations, UNICEF, CARE, Save the Children, Red Cross, in their feeding people in camps, when the traditionals are out there starving. 
So how do you how do you find your best line uh, to protect everybody, including the traditionals, but also, of course, recognizing what's happened to the people who fled there as refugees? <coughs> I saw similar things happen during my time in the Australian Embassy in Bangkok, but but that was about Cambodian refugees who came across and they were in camps on the border, and they were all obviously one day maybe a generation or two later, but they would eventually go back to Cambodia. That's the not world, the case no. with the people of these Rohingya. The world is having to deal with enormous issues, and of course some of which you've just illustrated, to do with migration, to do with refugees, to do with all sorts of displacement because of, of, of a variety of things, and some ugly things surface within different countries, some very, very ugly things and some humanitarian kind of atrocities occur as well. We're fully aware of that. And my worry is, and this is, of course, will have to be for another podcast, Christopher, but my worry is that the world hasn't really learned as much as it could have done over the last couple of hundred years. And so we're beginning to see just repeat performances left, right and centre. Um, but well, I, think, I think it's going to get worse, frankly, because we have everywhere, including Australia, uh, governments whose disposition is to curry favour within the electorate with people who they think will be able to mm. enable them to hold power. Uh, we have it here, you have it there. It's a very dangerous situation. I can remember in my early days, going back to the very first part of this, of this podcast, there I was arriving in foreign affairs. We were full of enthusiasm for the, for the concept of human rights. The discussion in Australia was how could we get a constitutional amendment made to uh, place the, the main human rights principles into the constitution. And it wasn't then a question of if it could be done, it was a question of when. When is gone from the agenda now. If is kind of there, but in a very muted way. And in a country like the United Kingdom where you don't actually have a constitution, which binds anyone beyond next week's legislation, it's very worrying to think about how that might one day go. Well, that parallels something. It's a little bit facetious, but I've always thought this, that everywhere else in the world has got a climate, except the United Kingdom just has weather. Um, and in some ways, the constitutional analogy is similar to that, you know, uh, in, in, in how we actually live things. But at the moment, too, we're facing another bleak landscape, which you are experiencing very much because you are experiencing a very severe lockdown at the moment uh, in Melbourne, where you live. Um, and the pandemic fallout that's still to come in the years ahead is going to cause so many different and difficult problems that will probably accelerate some of the existing underlying issues that you just illustrated. Well, the Prime Minister here uh, said in the early days of this pandemic that it's all right for Australia because we will snap back. Mm. And people with even the faintest appreciation of what was coming knew that that was not going to happen. All right. Well, look, Christopher, we're at the end of the podcast now, and I'm really, really pleased that you gave us the time to, to listen to a bit of your history. I know you could have been on for a while, and maybe we'll do another podcast because, I mean, effectively, I'm sure there's plenty more in there that you've actually been involved with that people would like to listen to. But for now, I just want to say thank you very much indeed, Christopher Lamb, for being my guest today. So thank, thank you, you again. Thank you, David. 
and my very best wishes to you through this uh, pandemic and to all the listeners to this podcast. Okay, thank you. Well, I found these two interviews with Christopher absolutely fascinating. What an insight into the world of diplomacy and latterly the International Red Cross Red Crescent Society. It's not often that you get a door opened into somebody else's world as vividly as that, but uh, I just hope you agree with me that it was a really good listen and worth a double spread. So my thanks as always to Alba Digital Media for their technical support in making this podcast. And uh, remember that you can leave a voice recording just by one click at that uh, button just to the side of the text on the front page. Please do so. I'm looking forward to your ideas and we'll respond to them uh, as soon as possible. So without any further ado, I am hoping to do another podcast soon with the uh, re-elected chair of the British Association of Social Workers. And that should be a good one. So thanks for listening. Speak to you soon.